So I uh, come from a, a family of five. I have an older brother. Um, he is three years older than me, and I have a younger sister. She's three years younger. And after um, my brother graduated from college, actually at Samford, he uh, moved to Washington D.C. and he worked. Um, he worked in the president's administration for several years. And uh, what came along with that was that he um, he was invited to the White House Christmas party every Christmas. And so he would kind of like go through our family and invite. You could bring one person. He would invite one person to come along. So uh, first year, my mom goes. Then my dad goes, then my sister goes, and like right before the administration changes, there's one invitation left, and so I get invited to D.C. Um, to the White House Christmas party to meet the president and his wife and, um, and be in the White House among all this history. It was really crazy. So um, he asked me if I want to come. I, you know, fly in one day, fly out the next, and um, fly into D.C., take the metro into Union Station, and I, um, you know, I'm, I'm changing from my travel clothes into my suit in the, ba- in the, you know, the bathroom at Union Station, and then, you know, something like two hours later, I'm standing in, uh, in the White House meeting the president and his wife, and, you know, the idea of changing in, in the, the restroom at Union Station, it never even crossed my mind that this could be weird or things that could come along with that. So I, I go and I'm standing in line and you have to check credentials and all that kind of stuff. And as I'm standing in line, I can kind of see in a distance, standing in front of the fireplace, I can see the president and his wife. And for me in that moment, presence changed things, right? Like the fact that I was getting ready to meet the leader of the free world and his wife made me think about the fact that I changed in the bathroom at Union Station. What could have come along with that? What do I smell like? You know, all these sorts of things, automatically being in someone's presence made all of these questions and all of these kind of like analyzations come to mind for me. Presence changed things for me that day. And presence changes things for all of us. Think about the relationships that we're involved in, whether that be personal with family at home or um, working relationships that you encounter in your office every day. There, There are certain times when we're around certain people and it causes us to think, to question, um, and most of all, I would say to respond. So presence changes things, but presence also causes a response. And we can see this play out in so many ways in our lives. For me that day, that response that it caused with this kind of self-analyzation, what am I going to, what do I look like? What do I smell like? What am I presenting myself as uh, to these people? But our response, it can, it can take a, a hundred different shapes in a hundred different ways, but presence requires a response. And this morning, as we uh, keep going in our study in Matthew, we're ending kind of like a four-week section of the study in Matthew. And um, this, this section we're calling The King is Here. And this morning, when we talk about presence, and we talk about um, presence changing things and presence requiring a response, most of all this morning, we are talking about the presence of our King, King Jesus, being here, being here with us. And that we, whether we have placed our faith in Jesus yet or not, we respond to the king. We are constantly, we are constantly responding to the king. We're responding with our actions, we're responding with our words, we're responding within our relationships. Everything, every ounce of who we are is continually responding to the presence of the king, responding, responding to the truth of Jesus. 
We're going to be in Matthew chapter 4 this morning, and we're going to cover kind of three different movements within one section. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to be in verses, um, verses 12 through 25. But there are three separate things that I want to make sure that we, um, that we notice within these movements. The king is initiating. Jesus is initiating in these passages. And we're going to see clearly what he's doing in the text, and we're going to talk about context. But then we're also going to step back at the end of each one of these sections and ask some questions about how the way that the king, the way that Jesus was initiating in this text, how is he initiating and how are we responding those same ways in our, in our lives today? So we're going to be in um, Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 17 first. Starting in verse 12, it says, Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, this is John the Baptist, his cousin, had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that it was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a great light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So at this um, point in Matthew's timeline, if you you remember last week, um, Danny uh, walked us through the temptation of Jesus in the desert. And so um, Jesus is tempted. He he responds with truth um, to the enemy, to Satan. He responds with truth to him. And then we see that um, after this temptation, Jesus is cared for by the angels. And then the next step that we have in Matthew's timeline is this. That Jesus gets news that his, um, that his, his cousin, his, John the Baptist, has been arrested. And then his next step is to move from where he was, from where he was to Galilee. Now there's, um, there's significance that happens in here. There's geographical significance. Um, the fact that, that Matthew tells us what Jesus was doing was fulfilling prophecy, it tells us that, that Jesus, where he was, was important and what he did was important and that he was on a mission, and we're going to come back to this later, but he was on a mission to be the Messiah, to be the Savior, to be the one that redeemed God's people. And so he moves from um, one area to the next, and this is sort of a transition point for Matthew in his timeline. This is the beginning of Jesus's ministry. He's been tempted, he's, he's, he's been cared for, and now it's like, kind of like the game is amping up. The king is here, and we've known he was here. We saw it in, um, when, Jesus, uh, when Danny preached two weeks ago about Jesus' baptism. It was like the initiating of God's kingdom. And now we see, Jesus, after Jesus' temptation, we see that this kind of like these next steps in his ministry, this moving forward and who he is as the Messiah. When he moves to Galilee, the place that he moves to, it was not a place that was uh, predominantly filled with, uh, with Jews, with Jewish people. And so Jesus is coming, preaching good news to the Jews, but he goes to a place that's kind of like a mixed demographic. In Galilee, there were Jews, but it was kind of like the nations were all like in one place at that time. So Jesus goes to the nations to preach the good news to the Jews. Okay, this is a broad spectrum of what he's doing here. And then he says these, these phrases, and I love the way that Jesus uses um, terminology like this and comes back to it. But what Isaiah says is he says that the, um, um, in this land, by the way of the sea, the people dwelling in darkness, they've seen a great light. Not like Jesus was bringing the light, but that the light was there, the presence of God was there, but now it has dawned, right? So God's care for his people in that area, his care for the Jews his presence was with them. He was always before them. But then there was this time 
There was this space of 400 years where God's people didn't hear from them. There was silence, and they waited, and they hoped, and they expected. And then the light dawns, Jesus appears, and he comes, and he comes proclaiming. What does he say? He has the message. The king has a message. And his message is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is, this is really significant, what Jesus is saying here. The same terminology that John the Baptist used in Matthew chapter 3, just a couple sections before, whenever he's saying, repent, for the kingdom... <coughs> Can I get an amen for allergies? <coughs> um, what, what John the Baptist was saying was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then John the Baptist is arrested. He's taken away and Jesus initiates. He's stepping forward in his ministry. And what he's saying is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or the kingdom of heaven is near or the kingdom of heaven is here. Repent. What is he saying? He's saying to turn toward God, to change your mind, to turn yourself toward him for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is here. The working definition that we've been using for the kingdom of heaven is the reign and the rule of God. So what what does that mean? Let's break that down just a step further. The reign and rule of God. The reign, the rule. The rule of God, it's it's his ultimate authority that he is the final say, the final initiator, that he is the authority above all authorities, that everything, as scripture tells us, was spoken into existence by his word, so he owns it. It is his. He has final say. So he has ultimate authority, and he has perfect power. He can exercise among his creation, among his people, the way that he chooses best to do. And he is just, and he is gracious, and he is right always. And so that's how he rules, and that's how he reigns. His authority is perfect and gracious and just, and his power is perfect and gracious and just. And the kingdom with Jesus coming is here. God's reign His rule, his care, his authority, his power is being exercised in its fullest as God himself is put on flesh and come to earth. So repent, turn from yourself, turn from pursuing your own, turn from your your idols, what you've propped up in the place of God and turn toward God for the kingdom, the perfect rule and reign, the authority and power of God of heaven is here. So in the midst of this quiet, in the midst of 400 years of silence, Jesus' words are, turn, I am here. 400 years of hope, 400 years of generations, 400 years of, of waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled and the promise steps on the scene. And he says, turn from yourself and turn toward me. For I am just, and I am right, and I am perfect, and I have all authority and all power. Remember those words. Turn. This message is true for us today, and we just want to establish this at the front of our time together this morning. That the same same words, what Jesus spoke whenever he stepped on the scene, He's in Galilee and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand. That was true for them at that time, physically, historically. And that truth is a reality for us today, that the kingdom of God has been established 
through the person of Jesus. Now, how did this happen, right? Like, how did this happen? Jesus, Jesus himself. That Jesus, God put on flesh, incarnate, indwelling, that God came to earth, was 100% completely, fully, absolutely man, and 100% completely, fully, absolutely God, that he came and he lived in perfection. He lived without sin, as, as Danny talked about last week. He lived without sin, even in the midst of temptation. Scripture tells us that he was faced with every temptation that's common to man, and he did not sin. He stood in our place. He did what we cannot and will never be able to do. Jesus came. So then he, he comes and he lives in perfection. And then what he does is he takes all of the sin, all of the wrong, all of the offense that we make toward God as we are turned away from him and turned toward ourselves or turned toward other things. He takes all those things upon himself and dies as a sacrifice for us. So God provides a sacrifice for his people to be made right with himself. And he does it through his son, Jesus. The kingdom of heaven has come. Jesus has stood in our place in life. He has stood in our place in death and he will return one again one day and make all things right. So the truth for us this morning is repent for the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus has come and we must respond. We must respond with our lives. We have to respond. We are responding with our lives. Everything inside of us, everything we're wired to do, everything that we push our lives and our energy and our money and our resources toward, we're trying to establish something for ourselves that God has established for us in Jesus. It can't be earned. It can't be worked for. You can't be good enough to attain it. That's the great thing about this. That's why it's good news is that God gives us forgiveness. He gives us relationship with himself through Jesus. So this morning, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn from yourself and turn toward God because Jesus is here and he has accomplished all the work that ever needs to be accomplished for us to be made right, made right with God. For you this morning, you may have never once, you may have not put your faith and hope in Jesus yet. I talk about the kingdom of heaven being here, the idea of turning from yourself and turning toward God. And you may have grown up in the South and heard this multiple times, or this may be the first time you've heard it this morning. But let me tell you, just like it is truth for us who have put our faith in Jesus, that we're continually turning from ourselves and turning toward God, it is truth for you this morning as well. It is God's word to you. Stop working, stop striving, stop trying to make it happen on your own. Turn from yourself. Jesus, the King, is here and he wants you to respond in relationship to himself. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. The king himself is here. So we see the king's message. Let's look at um, verses 18 through, <coughs> excuse me, 18 through 22 of chapter four. This is the king's invitation. It says, while they were walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. 
Immediately they left their nets, they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. So Jesus is walking and he sees brothers and he calls them. And it's, it's interesting in the, first, uh, in the first set of brothers when he's talking to Peter and Andrew, the, the phrasing that he uses, he says, follow me for I will make you fishers of men. And you have to, uh, geographically, the way Galilee is situated, if here is uh, the Sea of Galilee, Galilee's right about here. And they've grown up in the seafaring town probably the majority of their lives. And so fishing is like the second nature thing to them. It's like getting up in the morning, you get up and you go fish. Obviously, it was their livelihood as well. And so Jesus comes and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Um, you, you have to think like even what their thought process was, was we're going to learn something new. Jesus is going to teach us how to fish for men today. We've been going after fish our whole lives. Now we're going to go after men. Like what did that even mentally kind of like look like for them? But what Jesus does here is he, he does three things, I think more than this, but this morning for our purposes, he does three things as he approaches these brothers. The first thing is, is that he saw them as they were. Follow me with, with this. Jesus saw the brothers as they were. So um, in terms of geography, the way the text reads, it says Jesus sees them standing, um, standing by the sea. He sees them in their context, in their native environment. He sees them um, doing their vocation. They were casting nets. They were mending nets. They were earning a living for themselves. And Jesus looks at them and he sees them exactly where they are. He sees them in spot, in position, in in a way that is probably, they weren't even necessarily thinking about what they were doing. They had done it so many times. He's he's seeing them in the middle of the mundane. And he spoke to them, second, he spoke to them as as they were. Jesus talked to them in context. He talked to them in in plain language and the way that they would understand. So they're used to fishing all the time. So what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, follow me when we will make disciples of all nations. No, he's like, Follow me. What you're doing here with fish, with this thing, we're going to do this on a much bigger scale in a way that has such greater significance. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So he saw them where they were. He spoke to them in their context. And then he, um, he invited them to more. He said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He sees them where they are. He sees them in their context. And then he invites them into more. More significance. More purpose. Not that the things that they were doing were lacking significance or lacking purpose. But Jesus had a specific mission for these men, seeing them in their context, speaking to them in a way that they could understand. And he calls them to follow him. Now, the brother's response here, um, we, we see kind of uh, uh, what could be cast as a, this is what we should do when we hear Jesus calling us. And these are true statements. We, Jesus has an open invitation to us to submit our lives to him, to, to, to accept, to choose to follow him and live under the reign of his forgiveness. He has initiated that call to us, and we should respond to that with our lives. And so what, the, what do the brothers do? We see... For both sets of brothers, it says immediately. There was without haste. They didn't waste time. They responded quickly to Jesus. Okay? What, what we're unsure about when we look at this text is what kind of familiarity they had with Jesus in the first place. 
So if we see this and we see Jesus's immediate call to the brothers and they drop everything they have and they come after him, have they heard of him before? Have they um, just been around him? Was the spirit of God just like so heavy in front of them that they responded and, and they went and they walked with him? Was it possible that they had seen some miracles that were recorded um, in the book of John, that they had seen him do some things before? And so whenever he walked by and they were with him the night before potentially, and he walks by and he says, come with me. They're like, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow this guy. It doesn't matter, regardless of what happened or what their exposure was, whether they had never seen him before or they'd had minimum exposure to him at best. He issued a call and they responded quickly immediately. So they responded quickly. The second thing that we see in them is that they left their security. They left the things that seemed safe and familiar, right? So Jesus calls them and what do they do? They leave their nets, they leave with their casting or they leave with their mending. And for um, James and John, they don't just leave their nets. They leave, they leave their family. They're leaving their livelihood. They're leaving the things that make the most sense to pursue relationship with Jesus, to follow, to follow him. So they responded quickly. They left their security and they followed. They got up. They went with him. They trusted him. They followed him. Jesus called them and he told them what he would make them. He didn't say, follow me and maybe we'll see what happens with this whole thing. He doesn't say, follow me and maybe things will pan out in a way that are going to be good for everybody. What's he say? He says, you follow me and I'm going to make you fishers of men. You follow me and something is going to happen. So as we look even at this section here and we look at the brothers, we look at Jesus' initiating a call to them, we look at their response, we have to be really careful to keep in in context and in proper view what's happening here. Jesus is initiating a call. Jesus is saying he is going to do something. He is the initiator. He is the inviter. He is the one that says to them, you follow me and I'm going to make you fishers of men. You follow me and this is going to happen. There's amazing echoes in this passage as we look at John chapter, or Matthew chapter 4 of Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. It's almost like Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, he says, come follow me. And in Matthew chapter 28, he says, now go and do the same. Follow me, go and do. Follow me, go and live. Follow me, go and make fishers of other men. Make other followers. This is about the power of Christ. They submitted themselves to him. They chose to follow him. And he initiated the invitation. There was a specific individual call here. He, he called them. He said, hey, you, you follow me. And this is important for us this morning because as we think about sitting in this room or going back to our homes, we may potentially kind of hitch ourselves to the faith of someone else when, when what Jesus is asking for is for them to individually follow him, to respond quickly to him, to leave their security for him, to follow him individually as an individual call. Just as the message of Jesus um, to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near was, was for that time and is for us today, that invitation, it works the same way for us today. Jesus is the initiator to us. He is inviting us. And think about it in these same terms as the way that he saw the brothers. He sees us where we are, exactly where we are, with the good 
with the not so good, with the I don't want to tell anybody about it. He sees us exactly where we are. He speaks to us in a way that we understand. He offers us hope. He offers us forgiveness. We, we know what it's like to live in relationships that are marred with friction and marred with turmoil, and, 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 and we, we don't like it. It's uncomfortable. We want reparation. We want things to be made right. We know that on an individual level, but, but what, what God offers us through Jesus is that on, on an eternal level for all to be made right. He invites us to more. The thing about this is Jesus doesn't just invite them, and he doesn't just invite them to attend, right? He doesn't just say, come and like watch and let's, you can, you can watch me do my thing, even though that was part of it. He says, you come with me and I'm going to make you fishers of men. He didn't invite them to be attenders. He invited them to participate. It's like if we're going to hang out and we're going to be around one another, I'm going to say, hey, why don't, you, why don't you come and watch me run? Just come watch me run. Let's just go hang out and you can just watch me run, Right? Or, hey, not let's go play golf, but which none of you want to do with me, <laughs> but come watch me play golf. He doesn't invite them to observe, to just attend, to be bystanders that are not attached. What does he do? He invites them to be participants, to be actively involved, that he would make them fishers of men. A question we may ask ourselves in the midst of this as we even look at the brother's response would be, how does my personal security and comfort play into my following Jesus? What are things that we look at the brother's response and we're like, we, we don't see these obstacles in the way for them. The way that Matthew recounts this, it's not like they had to kind of think and shuffle through and process, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I? No, they, like, they dropped their stuff, they left their security, and they followed Jesus. Are there things in our lives that we may need to ask that same question? What is causing us to shuffle back and forth? What security are we wanting to hold on to? What is making us slow to respond in faith and trusting Jesus in the first place, but slow to respond in submitting our lives and living in obedience and following Christ? What are we holding on to? So we have the king's message, the king's invitation. In this last section, we see the king's mission. This is uh, Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 23. And it says, And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and the healing of every disease and affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. So Jesus goes through Galilee and he does three main things, right? He taught them where they gathered. That's what Jesus did. He taught in their synagogues. He taught in a place where um, people would go to be a part of um, God's relationship extended to his people, right? That's where Jesus went, where they gathered and he taught. And what did he teach? It says, not only did he teach, but he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, that the kingdom, the presence of Jesus was good news for them. Now, why? I think this is a good question to ask. Why? Why was the kingdom good news? Why, why was Jesus's presence, the, the reign and rule of God with them, why was it good news to them? Why was this a good thing? Why was his ultimate authority and perfect power? Why were these things good? Now, if you, if you think about it, the, the first one is just kind of like basic. There's been a promise that's been fulfilled. They were not, they were not left on their own. 
God made a promise that he would come, that he would redeem, that he would care, that he would be out for his people. And so whenever he comes and he says, the kingdom is here, he's saying, you've not been left on your own. This 400 years of hope and and years before that of hoping to see and hear and be rescued by God, it has come. It is here. They weren't left on their own. The other thing is there was, there was hope for life. It wasn't just that, that they, um, they, their hope had been actualized and it was kind of like finalized, that this historical moment had happened, the kingdom had been established, and yeah, all these things we've been waiting on, it was worth something. But there was actual hope for them there. That he was offering restoration to God through himself. That there was hope for life and hope more than just life in their situation. Okay, so he taught where they were gathered. He proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. And then this last thing, he healed their sicknesses. He healed every disease and affliction from among the people. So what he does is he comes and he proclaims good news and he makes right or wrong. He comes and he proclaims the good news and he exercises justice. This is also a prophetic fulfillment from Isaiah. That Jesus comes and he's speaking good news and doing good works. He's speaking good news and doing healing. He's establishing the kingdom of God and caring for God's people, humanity, caring for them. It's interesting, I think, when you look at the idea of healing, and this is something that I've asked myself, um, asked myself multiple times, and, and it makes sense in terms of prophecy fulfillment. Jesus came and he healed, but, but why this thing? Like, why was this one of the markers that the Messiah, that the Savior had come? Because bodies waste away. You get healed once, and ultimately you're still, you're still going to die. So why would Jesus come? Why would the Messiah come and healing was the thing, right? Epileptics, paralytics, all sorts of diseases is what Matthew tells us. They're coming to Jesus and he's healing their bodies. What is happening here is, is, is so beautiful for us to see because not only is he acting for their good, he's working for good on their behalf, he's also making a spiritual reality very physically present, What the good news of the kingdom is, is that God is restoring. He's making right the wrong of man and restoring us to relationship with God. Um, The way that Ephesians 2 2 tells us, Paul says that we're, we're dead. We're completely dead, separated from God. Unresponsive bodies, no pulse, no breath, nothing moving, physically dead, separated. And then Jesus comes and breathes life into us. What was dead is now living. What was sick is now healed. What was broken is now restored through Jesus. So we hear this, the kingdom is here. Repent and turn, the kingdom is here. It is good news to you. This is how. You were separated, now you're not. You were at odds with with your life and sin. Now you are not. You were sick, now you are not. You were dead, now you are not. Through Jesus. They responded out of need. Think about this idea of physical healing. I just want to step back here for just one more second. Think about this idea of physical healing. Um, uh, Cancer itself, I feel like it's a curse word in some ways, right? Especially when you are hearing it or hearing it from someone that, um, someone that you love. And we, uh, my mom, uh, was diagnosed with cancer back in December. And I remember like hearing that news and it just was crazy, right? You hear about it from other people, and many of you in this room, probably the majority of us, have been affected by this disease in one way or another. And in, in some cases, that, that illness of cancer, it takes life. They're, the only restoration or healing that is experienced is final restoration and healing past the body. 
But there are some that miraculous healing or modern medicine and technology, that healing comes to those men and women. Healing came through surgery and chemo for my mom, right? But it has totally changed her perspective on life. It's totally changed the way that she views things. She was sick and now she's not anymore. She had an uncertain future. Now she has a semi-okay future. It's changed the way she lives. It changes the way that she operates. And even when we think about the people that Jesus healed, you had to think, and this is what we find later out in this account, you have to think that they have to go around telling people, hey, I was sick and now I'm not anymore. You knew me as the epileptic. You saw that I was a paralytic and I couldn't move these legs. Now look at me. Look what happened. Jesus did this. When you think about it in terms of, of modern sickness in that same way, it's the, it's the same deal. You talk to my mom and, or, or many of us in this room, and, and she would say, God walked me through this. And, and either way, he was going to be faithful to me. But the way I view life now is different. I want to milk it for every ounce. I want to live every drop of it. I want to make it count. I want to do something with it. So we see Jesus... Um, uh, his mission here, he's teaching, proclaiming, he's healing. And then we see the crowd's response here as well. And there are three things that I think that we see here that are kind of in contrast to what happened with, uh, with the brothers in the section before. Here we see that the crowd, what did they do? And um, we see that, that fame for Jesus spread. It, it went out. People started to hear what was going on, that Jesus did something. So the people, they were talking Jesus came, he did something, he healed, he told us this good news, some of the best news we've ever heard, and they started talking. The good news of the kingdom, it was, it was spreading his fame. You ever thought about Jesus as a famous person? People wanted to be around him. They wanted to come and see him, either out of intrigue or out of hope. They talked about Jesus. The second thing here, which I think is probably one of the biggest differences that we see between the disciples and the crowds, is that while the disciples, while the brothers, they left their security. They left, um, they left their nets, they left their family, they left their livelihood, whatever. Here we see the opposite in the crowds. What did the crowds do? The crowds brought their insecurity. They brought the things they felt the most uncertain about. The things that they didn't know what was going to happen. The people that they loved, that they wanted to live with, that they wanted healing for probably some of the deepest pains and hurts that they had were attached to those people that they had seen live in agony or lived in, in isolation or, or being, being made fun of or ridiculed for whatever they had. They brought their insecurities. They brought them all the sick. But we see the same result in the end. The last thing, we see that the crowds, they followed Jesus too. This is what it tells us. Not only did they just kind of like, all right, he healed me and I'm done. He healed me. I heard good news. And now I'm going to follow him. I'm going to walk with him. I'm going to give my life to following him. The king's mission, the kingdom, just like his invitation and his message, are good for us today. The same reason that the kingdom of God was good news to those men and women is the same reason that it is good for us we are not left on our own. He is with us. His presence is here. This is good news for us. 
that God who is inviting us into relationship with himself is with us, is with his people, enabling them to live out the mission that he has called them to. We're not left on our own. There is hope in this life for us. But there is more to life than this. The same things. The good news of the kingdom is good news to us for the same reasons. We're both part and participants of the kingdom of God. We extend the mission of the king. We live in the good and gracious care of the king. Think about it in, um, in maybe uh, in practical terms, where you work. We have several of you in the room that are at the top of, um, of, your, of your organization, of your corporation. There's still more than likely a board of trustees that you respond to. There are those of us that are just kind of like going in and getting the work done. We've got a boss and our boss may have a boss. But ultimately what we are doing is we are acting under the authority of those that are over us. We're acting out pursuing the mission of that organization, of our job, of whatever it is that we're doing. We're pursuing the goal of those that are above us. And we do that daily. We go to work and we do our job and we're trying to, it's going to be the best university that the university can be. We're going to try and, and, and really try and impact people's lives in the way that we treat medical diseases. We're going to teach in a way that is, is, is set out and falls in line with, with where we're wanting our children to grow up in, 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 our, in our nation. There's somebody over us that's leading us. And in the same way, this is the, the way that we participate in the kingdom of God, except on, again, not just here in temporary terms, but on a massive scale that we are acting under the authority of the king. That we are extending the good news that God has come to all who are around us in the way that we speak and and the things that we say and then in the way that we live. The king has come. When we look at these two responses, when we look at the brothers and we look at the crowds, we see that they responded with eager willingness and with hopeful dependence. Left everything they had and went after him collected everything they had and went to him. It's interesting, the king, Jesus, he, he wanted nothing and wants everything all at the same time. He doesn't say, come to me and maybe you should bring those nets along and we'll see what we can make happen with them. Hey, I'm not sure how things are going to pan out, so bring that stuff that you have and we'll have this contingency plan going just in case this whole ministry thing doesn't pan out. Abandonment is what he wanted from them. And at the same time, he wants everything. Bring to me all that you have. Everything that concerns you, it concerns him. Everything that that occupies your mental time and emotional space, those things, he cares about those things. Bring them to him. He wants nothing because we can't earn it. We can't do anything for the favor and approval of God. Jesus earns that. He awards it to us through his life. But he wants us to bring who we are along with us. Because he is the king and he is the ultimate authority. He is the king and he has perfect power. So the truth is that we all respond to this news in one way or another. I would say there's probably two. You either listen to the good news of Jesus and this morning you hear it. 
and you respond to it in a way that says, I'm going to follow Christ because he's, he's the king. He's initiated relationship with me. He has worked for my good and I, I'm going to follow him. And that following, it may be in the context of a relationship that's already established. And there's some things that are going on in your life and, and, and you have strayed away from doing the good work of the king to doing the good work of Chad to doing the good work of, your, of yourself. And so we respond and we say, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. I'm going to be dependent on you. I'm going to be eagerly willing to follow you. Or there is resistance. We hear this good news, this news of restoration, that, that, that this, this chasm between God and man has been restored through the person of Jesus. We hear it and we resist. And we say, that's good news, but I've got better news. And the better news is I'm going to do this my way. I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to figure out a way to pursue success, to pursue happiness, to do whatever I can to numb this space in between because I know it's there and my life is affected by it. I may not have been able to label it, but that's exactly what it is. And so I'm going to pursue happiness and fulfillment and success and pleasure I'm going to, and, and status. I'm going to pursue those things on my own because that's the news I've got for myself. But let us remember that the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of heaven is here in Jesus. And he is exercising his rule and his reign. He has perfect power. He has ultimate authority. So whatever plans or whatever way or whatever news we think we have, we're only convincing ourselves of something that's a falsehood. That Jesus is the only way for our lives to be restored and made right. Made right. For a relationship with God to actually happen, it's only through Jesus. For purpose, for hope, it's only through the person of Christ as we respond to him. So this morning we're sitting here. We're hearing this text. We're listening to these words. We hear about a message. Repent, the kingdom of heaven's here. There's an invitation, follow me. Bring nothing, but bring everything. And there's a mission. There's a mission that we would do the good work of the king. But all of these, all of these are done as we're living out a response to Jesus. As we're responding to the king. We're living our lives, chasing after, following him, living out his good work. This is so important for us as we're taking steps in the next uh, coming weeks, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. It'd be easy for us, and Danny's going to really excited about the direction this is heading. He's going to start walking us through this next week. But as we get in here, it would be easy for us to look at the things that are said in the Sermon on the Mount and, and think I should be more compassionate, or I should just by myself be less lustful, or I should keep my word on my own. What we're seeing here in this text is foundational for all of that. We don't do those things in and of themselves. We do those things because the king is here. And we do those things as we respond to him. Let's uh, bow our heads for just a minute. I want you to just kind of like reflect on our time together this morning, reflect on this text. I want you to think about this message, this invitation, this mission. And I want you to personalize it. We, I want us to personalize it together this morning. 
That as we hear these words, this idea of call, that he's calling you, that he knows you, who you are. He's inviting you to follow him. If you've never chosen to follow him in the first place this morning, I, I pray that you would just begin to ask for faith, ask for trust, ask for the ability to follow Jesus. Or if there's something in your life this morning where you hear this idea of invitation, you hear about this good and perfect king who's acting for your good and wants you to act in the same way for the good of others, for the establishing of his kingdom. Just confess that. Confess the ways that you have not. Ask for restoration. Ask for forgiveness. Or maybe you just need to ask for strength to live out the mission. You're tired and it's hard but you want to do the good work of the king. Ask for his help. Father, this morning we thank you that your word is true and that it is good for us and that Jesus, our king, you are here. Father, if we are in this room and we question your love for us, if we question your acting for our good, if we question the way that our circumstances are turning out, God, we, we pray this morning that you would speak ultimate authority to our hearts and remind us of the goodness of Jesus, that he would give us perspective, that he would give us hope, that he would remind us of your ultimate love for us in the way that he died on our behalf. God, remind us of truth this morning. Remind us of your message, of your invitation, of the mission that lies before us. Remind us that our King is here. And we pray these things in the great name of our King Jesus. Amen.